Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof on News Talk. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Coming up on this week's programme, the hunt for a mysterious fifth force in physics. Very exciting. And Aubrey de Grey on living to 150 years old. If you'd like to get in touch with the programme, you can email us, science at newstalk.com, or you can find us on Twitter. We're at Newstalk Science. You can also text us for 30 cent 53106. But we don't get to them in the show. We, we deal with all of your comments in the podcast uh, with great fun, I might add. Listen and subscribe for free in the News Talk app powered by Go Loud. All right, it's time to kick off the show as we have done rather traditionally and predictably for quite some time with looking back at some of the breaking stories of the world of science this week. We're joined by science communicator Catherine McGuinness and from DCU School of Chemistry. Is that right? It is. And she says, she, she nods with a surprising look. Dr. Susan Keller, you're both very welcome. Our first story, Susan. Has to do with bad dreams. Yes, so my first question is, how many times a month would you say you wake up with a nightmare? So bad that, you know, it would wake you up from your sleep. Oh, never. Never. Oh, that you were one of the lucky ones then. Really? Because believe it or not, one in 20 people have bad dreams at least once a week. And data suggests that these people are at a higher risk of dementia than those who don't have these types no. of ni- yeah, nightmares. So scientists in the University of Birmingham looked at data from three previous sleep studies that examined the sleep quality of around 3,600 people um, aged 35 years and over and assessed their brain health over the next number of decades. And the authors of the paper looked for any connection between people who had really bad dreams and the cognitive decline over the years. And they showed that Middle-aged people who had bad dreams once a week were four times more likely to experience cognitive decline um, compared to those who rarely had nightmares. Four times. Four times, which is considerable, right? That older people who had nightmares were twice as likely to be diagnosed with dementia, as people over 80. Um, And then thirdly, that there was a stronger association for men than for women. Now, only mildly, so only a small amount, but that the men were more likely to be affected like this. Now, I don't know about you, but the first thing I thought was, well... Perhaps, you know, suspect maybe listeners thought this as well, that maybe people who frequently had nightmares are just people who maybe have bad sleep, have patterns and they suffer from poor sleep anyway, which we know has, you know, ill health effects. Um, Or or equally, the the fact that maybe these people have anxiety or stress-related disorders, which also has detrimental health effects. But the authors took this into account and they also saw that despite these, there was still this trend of people who woke up with nightmares had a higher portion of dementia onset. Which is amazing. That is very interesting, and like always, when you hear those stories, you kind of wonder what the mechanism is for that. Like, or or is there a mechanism? It's a correlation, obviously, but um, could could there be a mechanism underlying it? Are you someone who has? Bad dreams that would wake you up. Rarely, and it's when I'm busy or stressed. That's Mm. really the only time. I I, Mm. I often dream that I am I'm in my normal life, uh, in a family life, and then something happens and whatever happens I'm on the run and I've got to I have to I have to I have to leave everything I own and I have to start a new life and I told my wife about this quite recently and she said and how did you react and I said surprisingly well yeah it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't sound like a nightmare I tell you new fresh start do you know what I just I just I often find myself in these dreams going well 
I guess I could teach surf lessons in Cuba. <laughs> if I had to. <laughs> I guess, I, well, I mean, there's nothing I can do now. I might as well start again. Strong survival instinct. I would say it's not. It's not a nightmare. It's it, it's actually quite refreshing. I, mean, I want you to allow yourself, both of you, allow yourself a moment to think, imagine you just dropped everything you own and just had to start all over again. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's not that bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, or is that just me? How <laughs> <laughs> much do you like your life? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, our second story, Catherine, um, has to do with animal cam- uh, camouflage. Yes, this is a really interesting study and it's about um, looking at the, the different kind of protective value. Because when we think of camouflage, we think of animals blending into their background and yeah. that's called background matching. That's one type of camouflage. Yeah. But there are others like you have motion camouflage so an insect might sway like it's been a twig in a breeze. Oh, yeah. You have disruptive colour which are zebras. So, you know, if you have heard of zebras and they're all stripy, it's hard for the predator to single out one animal so they can hunt them down. And then the eye spot is also a very, very common one. You see it in moths and butterflies with big eyes. Yeah. So you may think you're looking at the face of a much larger animal. Yeah. And what, so what the study does, it, it it looked at the different groupings, also masquerading, which is probably the one that we're probably mix up, tend to mix up with mimicking. So masquerading is looking like something in the environment, like an object, so a twig or a leaf. Right. And um, they looked at, to quantify, they looked at the predator search time with these animals that ha- had a camouflage and also the predator attack rate. Right. And they're looking at all sorts of animals. So they're looking at vertebrates and they're looking at invertebrates. This is so cool. It, it, and it's the first time this has been done. And the data ranges from 1900 to 2002. Wow. Or 22, 2022. So it's a huge, huge data set they were looking at as well. And what's the interesting thing is that for the majority of different kind of devices, there seems to be really no huge effect on either predator search time or uh, the predator attack rate. So Except the predator search time is how long the predator is yeah, looking for the thing it so wants I'm looking, to eat. Caterpillar, caterpillar, not a leaf. Caterpillar, you know, cat's another, that's another leaf. Uh, yeah, and then the attack rate is, you know, how many times the prey is attacked by, by, okay. a, by a predator. And it, it might have another mechanism like flying away on top of their camouflage. So are you saying all camouflage types are the same? They're, they seem to be roughly the same except one, masquerading. Masquerading increases predator search time by 300%. Wow. Which is so. So masquerading is what again? So masquerading is where you look like something in your environment, an, an object. So like a twig oh, or yeah. a leaf. So then like the question, stick insects, like stick insects, phasmids, yeah, for instance. And in this particular study, caterpillars even more than the phasmids. It's caterpillars was very effective for them. So the question is, why haven't we all? Evolved to look like objects. Why don't I look like a lamppost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, go on. look like we'd be a lovely lamppost. You're yeah. like a fabulous lamppost. Um, and I suppose the question, the answer to the question is, if you're going to uh, evolve to look something like something in your environment, you have to be the same size as it. Yeah, you also and have to be really stay still a lot of the time, which yeah. restricts what you can do. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like I am a leaf. I identify as a leaf. I, you know, you're no Barry. You're an accountant. Get out of the tree. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah. So this, so this is, but it opens up much more questioning now because there's no comparative study ever done on camouflage before. The different devices, why they've been involved, evolved in different species. So it's going to, it's actually like all good science, it's giving us more questions than answers. Well, do you know, camouflage is fascinating Mm. and I listened to a podcast uh, by Roman Mars called 99% Invisible and he talked about um, the razzle-dazzle that you see mm-hmm. on uh, on boats. So if you ever look at a military boat, you happen to be on holidays or something, you see a military boat that has weird kind of colours on it that don't make any sense. It kind of looked like uh, something you might see in uh, Cuba, just mad splashes of colour. 
um, this idea, this technique of razzle dazzle. The idea was that you, when you looked at it from afar, you wouldn't be able to tell whether the boat was facing you or mm. away from you or mm. sideways, and that would give them this tactical advantage of just thirty seconds that would get them pointing at you and shooting you before you could see them. Very interesting stuff. Mm. Uh, so I love camouflage. Third story, Susan, is about human composting. Yes. So this is um, a very interesting thing. I, I'm fascinated by this. California this week have become the fifth state in the US to legalise this human composting. And it has nothing to do with your green bin, but rather an alternative to the traditional human burial or cremations. And it might sound pretty unappealing uh, to listeners, but arguably it's, it's pretty much what happens in nature, right? Um, it just is a lot more tastefully done. Tastefully done um, and much like a cremation, the family of the deceased are given the remains when the process is complete, just in this instance. Much like uh, a bag of compost? Yeah, a, a one cubic metre of soil to take away. To no, what you want. really? Yeah. So wait, wait, hang on. So the California have allowed people to compost themselves. Do they just... Like, are you, do you put your family member so like, it's, in well, the garden somewhere? No, it's done in the same way. That it's, it's all regulated and it has to be done by funeral homes. So there are oh. specific places now that do this and offer the service. And they're so busy that people are coming out of state to come and do this in the states that are allowed this to, you know, to happen in the US. I can see um, why it's so attractive. Yeah, well, the idea is that you're, you put this corpse, <laughs> I mean, you, get, you, you know, your corpse goes into a really large container with flowers and straw and alfalfa and wood chip. And then you sort of have a burial, you know, in, in this uh, funeral home. And then over 30 to 60 days, the body decomposes naturally. The bacteria get in there, do their job, break down everything, all the soft bits go and then you're left with bones the bones are then removed from the composting you know kind of let's just be clear you're stage. making it sound quite nice but um, insects yeah. in, insects devour your body right yeah so yeah. It, it's, it's a lot of bacteria the real main players like they're oh, the right, ones okay. because it's and it's your own bacteria hmm. they, they start to because it's because it's um, I'm quite clean yeah, <laughs> you're good. You do longer. have billions of bacteria in there, and then they're doing I'd say a lot more of good work. Millions <laughs> for me, and they're doing loads of work. So they come, they they start like within within minutes, your body starts to decompose, believe it or not, and you start to lose, you know, all your water from your cells, and bodies parts start to start to, start to rupture, and and you become goo quite quickly. Okay, but the, right. the bones are left, but then the bones are then taken out, and they are cremated and added back in, and and within sixty days, you then just got pretty much compost as you'd imagine, like just normal. Compost. Compost. And then I suppose you could just you can use it. spread Gary around well, in, in the two, garden. There's two <laughs> things. I mean, first of all, um, believe it or not, cremation um, puts 250,000 um, megatons of, or tons rather, of CO2 into the atmosphere each year in the mm. States. So that's a problem. Um, and second of all, it's um, we've lost around half the topsoil in on Earth over the last 150 years. So we need more soil. And maybe the answer is literally underneath your nose. I, I'd yeah, sign up I, if it was here. I'd, I don't know yeah, about you. I, I, I wouldn't mind that. Catherine? Yeah, I'm just thinking there, you know, the flowers and the, and the who does the weeding, you know, because in my garden, <laughs> just the weeds are everywhere. Like, <laughs> Yeah, and you, you, know, you want to be very careful where you're putting your hand if you're weeding around a, 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 a vat of corpses in soil. Um, very interesting. Thanks, Susan. Our final, final story is about ants and mm. there are a lot of them, it seems. Yes, 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 yes. So um, E.O. Wilson, who's the father of biodiversity, he, he always referred to ants as the little things that run the world. And uh, scientists have decided that they wanted to have a good estimate of the amount of ants, the number of ants, uh, the biomass of ants in the world. And they have reckoned they've worked it out to the nearest quadrillion, 
which is handy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what? That, that sounds extraordinarily I, inaccurate. <laughs> I can give it to you the nearest. Million, squillion, trillion. <laughs> yeah, go on. So the the study has come up with this number. So they reckon there are 20 quadrillion ants on Earth at right. any one time. A quadrillion is what? Uh, so it depends trillion. where you're from. Now, in, in, oh. in Europe, okay, you're, it's a one quadrillion is a, a one with 24 zeros after it. But of course, the US do theirs slightly different. In the US, it would be one with 15 zeros after it. Okay. Because there are billions well, which and one billions. Is it? Are oh. Were they specific? So, for, 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 yeah, from the study, study was done in the States. So they were, okay. they were going with the one okay. and the 15 zeros. So, so it's 20 of those, which, breaking it down, it's about 2.5 million ants per human being on Earth. Wow. Yeah, but there aren't that many human beings on Earth when you think about it. And no, ants everywhere. no. But the biomass, if you if you break down the dry biomass of that amount of of ants, you're talking about twelve megatons, which is more than all the the wild birds and mammals combined on Earth. Of ants, of just ants. But do they number? Like, how do they count them? Because I we did had an experiment. I was on holidays in France recently, and we we got those. Um, it's great fun, actually. We we were trying to figure out where the ants are going to and coming from. So we got a teeny, teeny, tiny little paintbrush. Me, me, me and the kids, oh, and we painted the backs of the of the ants as they go. And it's actually surprisingly, um, it's like meditation or something. It feels <laughs> it's quite um, satisfying. And we painted the backs of the ants, and we went to go see where they went. But when they went off, then it, it took them a long time to come back, and it, like. It's it's a long time counting just even like 10 ants because they move around. They move so around they but, but also a, a colony can go into the millions. Yeah. Depending on where you know what what, what specific species So how did at. they figure this out? So uh, the, the the wonderful world of extrapolation. Okay. So again they looked at uh recent studies and they extrapolated the data and they, they but they are very very confident because the, they do actually um criticize other estimates in the past. Oh. And they're they're very confident that they have uh identified the right amount of ants. But it also kind of puts a but question... This, but aren't you really depending on other people doing correct data yeah, to and give were, you the extrapolation? They, 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 so they were careful in the studies they chose. It is just right. a study, every study, a study that mentioned ants. And from this, they produced a map of abundance of ants around the world. Now, we know ants are more found in the tropic zones than in the temperate. Um, but this map of abundance is really going to help as a kind of uh, a zero and looking how ants... Uh, are reacting to climate change mm. and how that kind of... Do we care how ants are reacting to climate change? Oh, we, we, do, we, do, we, do, we do. These, we do, these yeah, guys yeah, move organic matter, they they transfer it around, they recycle it, they eat it. You know, we, we yeah, we need ants. Now, I know everyone's going on about the bees and the bees are lovely, but these other hymenopteras are very important. The what? Hymenopteras. Hymenopteras. Mm-hmm. Well, um... Good for the ants, then I say. Um, <laughs> Catherine McGinnis Long may they rain. and uh, Susan Kelleher, thanks very much. All right, on the way, I was at the Longevity Summit in Dublin this week and chatted with the keynote speaker, who's infamous gerontologist and immortality expert, Aubrey de Grey. Really interesting conversation coming up. Don't go anywhere. You're welcome back to Future Proof on News Talk. I'm Jonathan McRae. Now, last week you may have noticed we interviewed uh, Steve Ostad about what animals can teach us about living longer. And that's because the Longevity Summit was in the Mansion House uh, this week. Lots of amazing speakers. And we're going to be playing some interviews from that summit over the next few weeks. Uh, and the keynote for the event was the infamous and slightly controversial Aubrey de Grey, a gerontologist who almost through force of will has really borne uh, an entire industry and uh, academic research space into living 
forever, or at least extending how long we live. I caught up with, with him in the Mansion House. Here's that interview. Welcome to the program, Aubrey. Uh, you may not realize this, but you were the second person I ever interviewed in my science programming career uh, over 10 years ago. And I was fascinated at the time with this idea that you had that we could cure age, that aging was a disease that could be managed and that we didn't necessarily need to age. That was 10 years ago and we both aged. Um, I'm wondering if you might maybe uh, talk to us a little bit about your work now and what your feelings are on how we progressed in the science of curing age. Um, well, thank you for having me on the show, first of all. Um, yeah, I don't actually really like to use the word cure when it comes to this because aging is an intrinsic process that is a side effect of the processes that keep us alive from one day to the next. And as such, the way that we need to think about it is not so much as a disease, but definitely as a medical problem, something that medicine can postpone. And, of course, the real question is how much can we postpone it? At the moment, we can't postpone it very much, but the goal of my work and the work of other people in this field is to postpone it as much as we can, as soon as we can. So the past 10 years, honestly, I mean, I mean, it's unrecognizable. The amount that's happened in terms of not only our understanding of what aging is, but our ability to manipulate aspects of it, you know, it's been completely transformational. But of course, there's still quite a long way to go. Uh, so yeah, I mean, um, if we look at, for example, the uh, progression of certain types of uh, rejuvenation approaches from the laboratory into the clinic. We're now seeing clinical trials for certain types of stem cell therapy, for certain theolytics, in other words, molecules, drugs that are capable of killing off cells that accumulate in the body and are toxic. And there's a lot more of this to come. My work is typically focused on the earliest stages of such research, the you know, pre-investable um, things that really are uh, still at the concept stage and um, are working towards proof of concept. But over the past 10 years, we've seen a lot of what used to be in that category moving forward far enough that the private sector is now heavily involved, very large amounts of money are being allocated to this work. And of course, that means that the work is going faster than it was. So I feel that it's a good time to be alive. So what is our, our understanding then of aging on a cellular level? Uh, when, when we get old, what's going wrong? And how on earth are we supposed to try and fix that? Can you tell me a little bit about the different approaches to, to fi fixing or, or solving cellular aging? So aging is actually a, not a phenomenon of biology. It's a phenomenon of physics, by which I mean that aging of a living organism is at its roots, not really any different than aging of a man-made machine, like a car or an aeroplane or whatever. Essentially, any machine with moving parts, uh, whether it's living or not, does damage to itself as a consequence of its normal operation. And that damage accumulates, and eventually there's more damage than what the machine is built to tolerate. That's exactly what happens in the human body. Now, of course, the human body is an exceptionally complicated machine, so, lo and behold, there are lots and lots of different types of damage that accumulate. Um, you know, waste product accumulating, cells dying and not being replaced by cell division, all manner of things. 
And we have to address all of those things one way or another in order to do what we can think of as preventative maintenance on the body so that it does not accumulate enough damage to make us sick. Uh, so, so that's where my work's been all this time. 20 years ago, I introduced the what was really quite a paradigm shift in thinking about how we would do this, essentially shifting the conversation from how we might slow down the rate at which the body damages itself, so essentially make the body run more cleanly, um, but rather to rejuvenate the body by doing damage repair, by removing damage that's already accumulated. And so the things I mentioned a moment ago and many other aspects of this are all um, going to like come together to be applied to the same people at the same time in a rather... Um, well, and probably what will be a very complicated multi-component therapy in due course. Let's talk about this idea of sort of getting rid of waste. Um, you're talking about mitochondrial processes. Are you talking about um, waste accumulating in the cells and that, and that then stopping them from functioning? How far on are we from the idea of, of fixing those problems than, than we were, say, 10 years ago? Well, yeah, so let's talk about waste inside the cell because that is the basis for a number of the most important uh, health problems of late life. Um, so one example that we started working on probably 15 years ago was the waste that accumulates in the back of the eye in what are called the retinal pigmented epithelial cells um, and which causes macular degeneration, number one for the blindness of the elderly. So um, the idea that I suggested was that we might be able to find uh, other species, in which, especially bacteria and fungi, that for whatever reason have evolved enzymes that are able to break down this stuff. And it was quite easy to find enzymes that seemed promising. Naturally, as with any uh, biomedical research, there were plenty of setbacks. Um, but it was not very means a smooth process, but that uh, that idea went through a number of years in our foundation uh, and then was spun out of a startup company and that work has proceeded and it's now got to the point where the work is probably going to be, be snapped up by Big Pharma and taken forward into the clinic very soon. Uh, another, another example is what happens in atherosclerosis where oxidized cholesterol accumulates in the arteries and there again, we uh, came up with a radical new idea for how to get rid of this stuff. In that case, rather than breaking it down, um, the idea was to extract it and excrete it. And again, that has moved forward so well that um, there are now people who are not just supporting that work philanthropically, but actually as investors. So it's now a startup company that we spun out a year or two ago. So honestly, yeah, this work, you know, it's, it's very foundational stuff, and therefore you never know how long it's going to take to come to fruition. But um, it's definitely been moving forward very rapidly in the past two years. You mentioned investors. It does seem that there is an increased interest <clears throat> in solving aging in a way that there didn't seem to be 10 years ago. Is that because we're starting to make progress in lots of different little areas? Uh, or why do you think there's all of a sudden a huge amount of interest in investing in medical technologies to reverse aging? Yeah, I certainly think that the number one driver is actual progress that's been made. But really, that is inextricably linked with the conversation about what's going on. So, you know, 10 years ago, 
pretty much nobody other than myself among the expert gerontology community was going out and publicly saying that we are in striking distance of being able to bring aging under comprehensive medical control. But now we've got quite a number of my colleagues who feel able to say the same kind of thing simply because progress has been sufficiently solid that we can kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel. That said, life expectancy in the United States is starting to go down. Climate change obviously is, is bearing down upon us. Do you think that uh, we need more people in, in the world living longer? I mean, obviously that is one of the, the, the problems with curing aging is that we get more and more people that occupying more and more space in the planet. Uh, yeah, I have spent a lot of my time over the past 20 years answering that question and questions like it. Honestly, I think the only reason why questions like this come up is because there is a mindset that says that aging is kind of distinct from the diseases of lay life. You know, no one says, oh dear, you know, there's going to be too many people if we cure Alzheimer's disease or cancer or whatever. Um, but they do say this about aging. And I think it's because of a muddled thinking about what aging is. Essentially, we shouldn't really be calling Alzheimer's disease a disease. We shouldn't really be calling the other so-called diseases of late life diseases because they are simply the aspects of aging that we have chosen to give disease-like names to. And the things that we think of as aging itself are simply the aspects of aging that we have not chosen to give to these like names to. There's no real difference from the biological perspective between the two categories. Therefore, we should just be looking at the question of do we want people to carry on getting sick when they get old? And if we say, no, we don't, and then yes, we will have a different world as a result. And we cannot conceive at this point what kinds of problems we might, we might have to face. But we can certainly say that the sheer astronomical amount of suffering that is caused by people getting sick when they get old is unacceptable. I mean, it's fix it. There are lots of uh, diseases that become more likely as we get old. You mentioned Alzheimer's, cancer, and so on. Um, is there an area of research into, lo into longevity that you think will have a particularly large impact on life expectancy uh, as you're looking at it now? Is there a particular area that, um, I suppose, that is, is, is one of the most um, malicious uh, in, in aging, that if we solve that, it will have a huge effect on life expectancy yeah. across the globe. There really isn't any single one. And this is largely for evolutionary reasons, that we have genes and uh, genetic processes that defend against aging, um, that essentially are responsible for the fact that we live as long as we do before getting sick. And those processes all are kind of um, selected by evolution to be as good as each other. There's no, there's no, essentially from an evolutionary perspective, there's no point in having one process that is unnecessarily good. Uh, and therefore, no, yeah, it, it, it's kind of no accident that pretty much all of these things that go wrong with us late in life go wrong at more or less the same age. But when we spoke 10 years ago, Two things he said to me really stuck with me, and that was that every 10 years we've had an extra year um, in life expectancy. Um, and, and the other was that you believe that uh, today, oh, that was 10 years ago, but let's just say today, the person who's going to live to 150 has already been born. I'm wondering, do, do you still feel that that sort of level of progress is, is happening, that, that we will see someone 
I have lived to 150, I have that, you know, in the next 150 years, or, or have we revised that given that we're both aging? And <laughs> we haven't cured it yet. So actually, I have not revised that opinion. I still certainly believe that it's very likely that a lot of the people who are alive today will actually be able to avoid getting sick however old they get because our progress against the health problems of late life will be sufficiently rapid, sufficiently soon. Essentially, because we are talking here about damage repair technology, rejuvenation technologies, these technologies will be relevant to them, um, will benefit people who are already in middle age or older at the time that the therapies come to fruition. Mm. And so if we say that, well, maybe those therapies will come to fruition in the next 10 or 20, 50, or even 30 years, then that still means that most people alive today will be able to benefit from them. Well, yes, I think it's very likely. Yeah, I suppose that, that does also depend on a very de democratic distribution of high-quality healthcare, which, which I suppose is, is, a, is a societal question and a different question. Uh, kind of. But, and, and, of course, people are often worried that anything that is high-tech and expensive uh, will only be available to the wealthy, at least for a while. But actually, there is very good reason for optimism that these particular therapies will be made available to absolutely everybody who's old enough to need them almost as, almost as soon as they're available to anybody. And the reason why is that it's not just a societal thing, it's an economic thing. That at the moment, we have to spend a vast amount of money keeping sick people alive. And even though we can't do it very well, nevertheless, it dominates. It's, it accounts for the vast majority of medical expenditure in the industrialised world. That money would be saved if people did not get sick when they got old. So even if you're having to spend some of that saving, um, uh, you know, uh, administering the therapies, it's going to be just for purely mercenary economic reasons, absolutely these things are going to pay for themselves. And exactly how that's done in terms of whether it's um, paid for with the taxpayer or, or in, in other ways, depending on whether you're in a country with a single-payer system, for example, you know, that doesn't really matter. It's just like one way or another, the country is going to be a lot more prosperous if its population does not get sick. From the Longevity Summit, Obi de Grey, biomedical gerontologist, keynote speaker. Thanks very much for joining. An interesting um, event. There were some people, you know, who were um, really scientifically. Um, very credible and then there were there were other interesting people who were doing things but it was just on the fringe and very early stuff at the longevity stomach where I was thinking if he's right about this thing that he's claiming it'll change everything it'll you know it'll absolutely transform our our health you know so it's funny that when you go to the sort of events it's great to have a mix of you know um, you know really rock solid science and and other stuff but then you wonder you know Will, will will some of the ideas pan out? Um, our producer Aidan McKelvey joins us to go through your comments from last week, of which there were many. I'm not quite sure what happened, but um, loads and loads of people. People feel passionately about transport well, and 
Yeah, they do. Animals living for a long time, apparently. It's a, um, it's either a, a feast or a famine, as they say. So we were talking about long-lived animals. We were having a chat with Stephen Ostad, right? And um, talking about a few things. He said, um, he was talking about bats retaining high-frequency hearing. And someone said, if bats retain high-frequency hearing, is there a possible lead to a cure for tinnitus, which is often associated with high-frequency hearing loss? Hmm. I would imagine so. Interesting like that, idea. Yeah, I mean, Aubrey de Grey was saying it's sort of an incremental thing. It's improving all the little constituent bits, longevity. So if we were to research bats... Well, we I know for sure that the loss of hearing has a dramatic effect on life expectancy because what happens is you don't get the communication, attention and social care that you need from your social circle because people find it very difficult sometimes to communicate with you. And so you uh, often, not always, of course, but often people tend to become more uh, in, uh, introverted. They don't tend to, because it's too much hassle, uh, they don't tend to be a social and uh, that can have an effect on, on various things for, for various different reasons. So losing your hearing is not just about losing your hearing. It's a significant change in your quality of life. Um, we were um, talking, uh, as I say, to Stephen Ostad, and he was talking about um, these bivalves, which essentially are like mollusks or like mussels clams or something, and clams and yeah. stuff. Yeah. Uh, Peter says, Dear Jonathan, I refer to your interview with Stephen Ostad. His comments on protein stability in long-lived animals such as the bivalve Arctica islandica caught my attention. In particular, the suggestion that bivalves can prevent amyloid formation. However, having checked his publications, they found only two papers on protein stability in Arctica Islandica. Uh, neither of these proves that the bivalve contains a chaperone or other molecule that enhances pro- protein stability. Needless to say, ni- neither paper provides any evidence for the prevention of amyloids either. Well, let's put that to Stephen Ostad, um, because uh, this is certainly what he was um implying in the interview so thanks very much for that peter we you know every once in a while something comes and it is quite rare but every once in a while something um happens on the in, um, program where there's a claim made and i have a pretty good bullshit detector i think uh, and certainly it went off a bit recently in this uh, uh, in the past week right someone said something i went that's not right that can't be right and sure enough i spoke to a scientific expert and they went no there's, there's no way that could be scientifically true so i over the past 12 years i've I have a good one for that. To be honest, how bivalves can prevent amyloid formation. He could he could have claimed anything. He could he could have claimed anything. And so uh, we'll go back to him on that. Yeah, and it's a funny one in this show because we are not scientists. There's a certain degree to which you have to take uh, take it at some face value. If it's been published and they they're reputable scientists, you don't know the ex- they're more of an expert than you are. But like you said, sometimes our bullshit detector goes off or we get a, a comment back in it and yeah. we try and have someone back on who can talk about that angle like for instance the plant intelligence recently where Paco Calvo had dealt with Monica Gaglioni's research and she had been on the show before yeah, yeah. and now that research is looking hard to reproduce but that's science yeah, yeah, <laughs> we, yeah, we, yeah, and, we and learn as we go exactly and it's good to get those comments in because you know there's only so much we can check I'm not going to read scientific papers I'm just not. I'm not going to read scientific papers in preparation for an interview with someone. I will read what whatever material is available to lay people, but I'm not going to re- read in, in depth all of the scientific papers someone's published on the subject. It's not possible. Yeah, in a lot of cases, you wouldn't be able to read I just it. refuse the, to do it. Abe. Yeah, refuse you refuse to do, to do it. But the, the, the words that are being used there yeah. might just be completely meaningless to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so thanks very much for that, Peter. Um, 
we were talking about you know um, how uh, Methuselah's um, zoo. We were uh, we were plugging the book Stephen Austad. Thanks very much for that, Peter. Yeah, on the um, on Twitter we were we were saying look, you know, coming up we're going to speak to Stephen about uh, living longer and and hidden shallows. There's not much hope of that if we keep ignoring the science on COVID. I was like, well, COVID and climate change. Well, yeah, live very long. I have a feeling that Hidden Shadows may have been a bot. I did look into the account. It had six followers, but I couldn't decide. I couldn't figure out from the tweets that it had put out. That's a good bot. Whether it was. It's a good bot right there. Well, Here, I listen, couldn't figure out whether it was in favour of like masks and vaccinations or against them. It was really unclear. So I don't know if <laughs> okay. it was a good bot. It's a vague bot. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think, you know, if it um, walks like a human and talks like a human, then we'll take it as a listener. I mean, that's how it works. <laughs> in the show. Um, on the future of transport, uh, we spoke to um, Marcus Enoch, um, who was, he was he, very reluctant to commit to any ideas, I thought, of the program. I would say, what do you think of this? And we go, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure about it. But anyway, um, we were talking about the future of transport and Maraid uh, emailed us in saying, Bus Connects is a disaster. Older people living in housing estates in Dublin have become housebound because they've removed bus services they had for decades and replaced them with local bus services to shopping centres not requested with no hospital bus stops included. Minister of Transport needs to look at other European cities to see how their transport runs smoothly. Should have Dart or Lewis to Dublin Airport and more suburbs too. Yep. Um, but then, as we always have this conversation, I can feel the weight of the stare of those in Donegal looking at this, <laughs> look, you know, looking at this conversation happening and going, just give us a flipping route to Donegal. Just get, give us something. Give us. So it's not, it's not, it, it's not easy. We need more, but there's definitely parts of the country that need it more than Dublin. Um, another person says hi Jonathan interesting chat on transport especially since the railway order for Metrolink was advertised this weekend yeah <laughs> we'll see uh, however the future is here right now and that is in capitals exclamation mark many of them electric bikes I got one this year it's a revelation 14 years of cross town commuting in all weathers sweating like a pig by the time I got to the office dressed like dressed in some high-vis gear like some weirdo. Now I jump on my bike, hit the power button and feel the gentle extra push the motor gives me as I get to work. No need for a shower, wearing office clothes and feeling like the smug git that I am as I see everyone else pedaling furiously into the wind. More bicycle tracks, more safe places to lock a bike, remove the need for high-vis clothes, just make it easy and people will jump in and save the planet, money and lose a few kilos. Kind regards, Mark. I think electric bikes are fantastic. I mean, personally, I think it's obviously better for you and uh, better for the environment because you don't have to charge it if you can cycle. Um, and just, if you're not someone who cycles, can I just say this? Invest in a good bike. That's yeah, that's difficult. often the thing that, that puts people off. They go, oh, the gears are not way. Invest in a good bike and just don't throw it on the, on the ground or, you know, lash it into the hole or throw it in a bike shed. Be careful with the bike. Just be careful with the bike and oil it and keep, keep an eye on it and it'll work really smoothly and you'll love it. A lot of the time people just they buy a bike and then they trash it and they go, oh, yeah, bikes are terrible. It's true. I had a terrible bike and I used to do an hour and 15 minute commute in and out and I dreaded it. No, uh, no, and then I got a good bike halfway through that commute and I was like, this is glorious. It I was is. going down the Greenway and the so Grand nice. Canal. Smooth, nice, lovely, smooth gear shift, and you cycle along. Yeah. I feel like something almost sexual about it. Just a really smooth change <laughs> of gear. His room feels very small. <laughs> <laughs> so I agree, Mark. Uh, but I do think for those who can't, and and the you know 
with the electric bikes, you know, it is good that you're not coming in, into work sweaty. I just, I can't stand a sweaty work colleague. You have, you have never let me down. You're always, always good. I, just, <laughs> I don't want to be in a room with a sweaty colleague, and no, I haven't true. had to do it yet. So that's good. I thought you were going to kudos to you. Me as a sweaty no, colleague. you, you looked <laughs> like you were going to sweat there, but you didn't. Um, thanks so much to our team: Aidan McKelvey, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt, and Ugo da Silva on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday, talking about the Fifth Force and the hunt for it at the LHC. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.